we were describing the three different categories of spiritual work that we find ourselves in at any different time. Russia being in Yitzhak, Russia being the fragmented state where the opportunity for growth is returning to ourselves and to God. The Bainini is the position of choice where we're in a regulated state and we're able to choose how I'm going to act and we choose right action. Sadiq is the, is the service of someone who has done the work and transformed themselves and they are not in a state of inner struggle anymore. Not everyone has the capacity to reach that level. Different people come to the world with different spiritual work to do and for some people it's that is their spiritual work and for some people it is to live a life um, confronting the struggle of existence on a continuous basis, day after day, and that in itself is spiritual perfection. That's amazing work. Now, now he's going into a slightly different topic. He's starting to talk about different categories within the realm of Bainini. He says that there is the Bainini who serves God and the Bainini who serves God not. Now we're going to have to understand what it is. But before we do, let's go into a little bit of an introduction as to what it means to serve God. Now, when we say serve, a lot of times, what does it conjure up? What a images servant come to and a master. Yeah. A servant and a master, okay. What, emotionally, what does that feel like? Like you're, you're less than. And less than? Yeah, like okay. subservient. Like yeah, somebody like on the floor with a rag, yeah, like yeah. cleaning, scrubbing. Service. Yeah. You're told what to do. So it's, told what to do. it's like you don't have your own right. ideas almost. Or no autonomy? Yeah, maybe? yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so now, now let's slightly shift the phraseology to what does it mean when I say to be of service? It's got more positive yeah. Helpful, more helpful. Okay, yeah. To be of service. Supportive. Yeah. So, right. There's something a little bit more... There's, there's me involved. There's a relationship involved. It doesn't feel so kind of victim-bully kind of, yeah. you know, scenario, right? To be of service. And the truth is, is that if you think about it, probably one of our deepest desires in life is to be of service to something that we value, yeah. right? To be of service to someone that we respect, to be of service to something that we value. This is something that is a very deep need for any human being. And in fact, Viktor Frankl, which I've spoken to you about before, do you know who you've heard of Viktor Frankl? Yes. So he, well, his whole thesis was on meaning. Like, if there's a why, I can endure almost any how. So that, that why the meaning is to be of service to something that I feel is valuable. Like if I know that what I'm doing is important, is of service to something, then I'll enjoy anything. So really what we are describing here is being of service to God. That is something very interesting to ponder. What does it mean to be of service to God as a human being? As a human or as a Jewish person? Mm. That's a nice question. <laughs> <laughs> there is different ways that a Jew and a non-Jew are of service to God, but we are all of service to God, as in we are all God's children. But there is like a specific Jewish path, and there's other paths of service to God. Yeah. Like, is it, it makes you wonder if, like, as you're doing something that God doesn't have, and you're helping Him. Mm. Let's just paint a picture for a second. You, you have insight. You have infinite energy, infinite light, infinite power, infinite. Um, possibility, there is no way that our brains can possibly understand what infinity actually means. The more we think about it, the more we realize like how... I was talking to someone today and she said to me, I'm quite 
unintelligent, she was saying. So I said to her, you're somewhere in the middle of infinity with your intelligence. There's like infinite people who have more intelligence or less intelligence than you, let's say. You're in the middle of infinity. Now, what's the middle of infinity? We don't know. It's just a place. It's just a place. That's where you are, right? Now, of course, there are a finite amount of people, right? But it's just like an understanding of how, when we're thinking about God, there is there is infinity here and infinity doesn't fit into our little finite brains okay what happened is is that god decided that he wanted to have a relationship with another and in order for there to be a relationship with another there needs to be free choice involved so for there to be free choice involved he has to withdraw space he has to create space so that there is room for another now if you think about it for a second what does it take for you to create space for another in your life a spouse a child to step back and allow them to make their own mistakes, to explore on their own, to be who they are. It's like a lot of our own mental, emotional energy to make space for another. And that we're human. The thought, just a moment to think about what it would take for an infinite being to withdraw and create space for another, for a world to be created. This is what God did. And he did that in the name of relationship, creating so that the end goal is face-to-face relationship with God. Okay, through the process of our inner work. The, a finite being, being of service to an infinite God, what even does that look like? What even does this, this concept, to think about it for a second, what would it mean for a finite being to be of service to an infinite God? An infinite power, literally all energy, all life, all wisdom, all, all awareness is, what could it possibly be lacking that it would want to create a relationship with another that it an other can actually be of service to it right you mean like as in why did god decide to make space to make space for another and what can we possibly do to be of service to god this is a good question to think about and and this is what the altar Rebbe gives as a response to this that there is a unique light that is produced or created from a human being's struggle and choice to do right action in connection to God, like in relationship with God. There's something that comes specifically from the darkness. There's a unique type of light that comes from this darkness that is extremely valuable, important, precious, and pleasurable to God. This is part of our ability to be of service to God. So he gave us the Torah and he gave us mitzvahs. And the Torah and the mitzvahs are the wisdom and the kind of God making himself vulnerable and saying, this is what I love. Like you would say to a loved one, like, I love this. All of the mitzvahs are bound by physical material matter. There's something that we, an action that we do, whether it's giving charity with, with money or it's being kind to another person or whatever it is, it's an act that we're doing with a physical material matter and we can only engage in that action because we have a physical material body. So basically... In, in the world of spirit, where souls and angels and spiritual worlds exist, everything is so vast and so expansive and so light, but nothing is contained in a material vessel. And it's when we're contained in this physical material matter of a vessel that we can interact with the material matter of an object and we can actually hold it in our hands, right? And this is how we hold God in our hands. That's basically we're able to actually connect to God on such an intimate level through material matter of the world, even though it's the most concealed 
form of divine energy that exists in all of the all of the spiritual universes. Physical matter is the most dense, concealed divine energy. It's like not being able to interact with the soul until it's in yes, a until it's in a body, right? So exactly, is that if you want to hug to somebody that? that you love, mm-hmm. right, they need to be in a body. <laughs> Otherwise, you can talk to them and they're here, but there, there's something about actually holding something in our hands, hugging somebody physically, that you actually have them, right? And this is exactly what it is when we do a mitzvah. We're actually holding God within our hands. So basically, we come into this world, like we said and we described, with the animal soul and the divine soul. This conflict within animal souls, the instinctive survival mechanisms, the, um, the separateness consciousness, which is that I need approval and I need validation because otherwise I feel like I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm just a piece of something floating wherever and then the divine soul consciousness which is sense the sense is the unity of all things and the oneness of god and basically the value of everything and everyone right and within us within our within our conscious personality mainly we experience ourselves as the animal soul until we begin to actually feed our divine soul with information with torah that actually helps it to grow it's like food when we learn Torah, we said it's food for the soul it develops it nourishes it It gives us an understanding and awareness it brings and the other language that uses light it gives us light what's like we said light is synonymous with information right now when we come into the world we are born into a state of darkness which means we are constantly making assumptions about things because we don't have accurate information so when we're one years old two years old three years old we see all these things happening around us and we don't know why it's happening so we create assumptions about things and we guess. Once somebody comes and actually tells us something or gives us the information, so then we go, ah, oh, okay, now I get it. And like, it's almost like this clarity or this light in our mind. And we're like, oh, wow, now I get it. So Torah is a light in the sense that it gives us awareness and understanding about the reality of things and takes us away from assumptions that we make about God and about our relationship with God and about the world and a lot of it has to do with the a lot of the assumptions we make about God are based on things that we hear about God and then we we kind of associate God with an authority figure and depending on the relationship we've had with our primary authority figures we associate that with God and we just continue to build assumptions until we actually learn the true definition of God and then when we understand and learn the true definition of God we then start to create a relationship with God, which is a more authentic, yeah, relationship where we can show up. And uh, this understanding is as a light in the darkness of our confused and as- assuming minds. So basically the, the struggle between learning new information, integrating it, making choices, this becoming dysregulated, regulating ourselves, having choice, what's right... Do I want to do right action? If God tells me to do this mitzvah in the Torah, this is the mitzvah. I don't want to do that mitzvah. Don't speak badly about other people, but I want to gossip about this person with my friend, right? So, <laughs> so these, these kind of situations, I want to, but why would I stop myself if I have such a juicy piece of gossip to say on the tip of my tongue? Why would I stop myself from saying it, so right? Relationship with God. If I have a relationship with God that is fueled by a love, and this love comes from awareness and understanding of what this relationship I have, a deep emotion of love towards God and awe of God, I have the strength and the capacity to choose not to speak this piece of gossip, even if I want to. This is what we were talking about, how the Bainini has choice. The Bainini 
it has the capacity for choice because they have knowledge about God and they have integrated that knowledge and therefore they have choice. Okay, so this, this is what we described as this middle place. Now, because we're constantly going through a process of growth and we're constantly going through this process of, of, of connecting with and engaging with our instinctive mode and then that stage where as a human being I have the capacity to choose to take the next step. So he says that there's two ways, you know, two ways of walking through the world. One is, especially walking through this world as a Bainini, somebody who's constantly doing right action. This is what he's talking about now. Someone who constantly does right action, there's two ways. This can be one is because a person's personality and their natural traits and the way that they were born is that they like to do the right thing. And they don't necessarily struggle with maybe they're a little bit antisocial they like to sit all day and study they in general don't have the struggle to do anything that is not right action and then you have a person who is all day long struggling with triggers and the survival instinct and wanting to do certain things and then choosing not to and choosing not to and choosing not to right very different inner worlds right there they might look the same externally both of them are doing the same action but one of them is engaged in active service in the sense that they are doing the inner work. And one has plateaued and has just now gone into autopilot. And this person is not in active service. Now, if you can say about a person, let's say they just find it easy to do the right thing. So what are they supposed to do? Do I not have a possibility of engaging in active service? And what he says is that every person has a place they can push themselves if they choose. Like, and he gives the example of the fact that it was customary in the time to review their studies a hundred times. But the person who reviewed the study their studies a hundred and one time, that one time was worth all the hundred times because it was a process, it was a gift almost. Like I'm giving this to you from my love. Like I'm putting the effort in here because I care about this relationship, because I want to be of service in this relationship, because I want to show you like how much I care, like an, a gift of love, an act of love. And the altar ever says that the only way a person can engage with this kind of service is if they arouse within their heart a love of God to really actually feel the energy. Emotions are really interesting because they are energy that moves in our body. Right. And, you know, for example, if someone's like really angry with you, you literally feel like maybe someone's like hitting you over the head. It's like feels like a really strong energy coming towards you. It's a strong vibration. And if someone is in a state of joy and lightness, you also feel it. Right. There's a lot of power. Emotion is emotion, energy, emotion. There's a lot of power in emotion and that emotions are what drive us to do and act in certain ways. When we experience a deep love in our hearts towards God, it is enough energy and power to drive us to do any right action, even when it's hard, even when it, is, it takes effort. Like I have to go out of my beaten path to do it. To be of service, to, to be in a state of, of serving God, of growing basically, to be in active growth, I need to experience love in order to fuel that growth. I need to work at building and expanding and creating that experience of love in my heart. Let me see if I got your question. Sure. If yeah. someone doesn't experience the love of God or the love of self, is there a way that they can get love of God to be able to do that? Absolutely. Yeah. And the Alter Rebbe covers that in the course of Tanya. I'll give it to you in a nutshell, but we'll speak about it a lot in depth as we go along. 
is that there's a few ways the Alter Rebbe says to arouse and create a love within inside of a person's heart. First of all, he says we all have a hidden love. The hidden love that we all have for God is our, our instinct for attachment. We're all born with an instinct to attach, to connect. And basically, it is just a mirror of or a reflection of the deep inner yearning of the soul to connect to its source and spirituality. And if you just think about the very pulse of the universe, it's all about attachment. Like most of our inner world and inner chaos is about, do I belong? Do they like me? Am, you know, am I loved? Literally, the stuff that we care about, I would say most people spend most of their life caring about their attachments more than anything else, yeah. right? And all the fear of all the other stuff in their life, a lot of it has to do with fear of losing attachments, even if we... If, even if we think it's like a fear of not having the dress I want to wear, but underneath that, why do I care about wearing this dress or this dress? A lot of it might have to do with feeling like I belong. So it, it's underneath the surface. It's the fire that fuels us. Now we come into this world with this existential need and, a, and desire for attachment. And we start out by attaching to our primary caregivers and to our friends and to our siblings. And we go through the stages and then we attach to a spouse. And our, our, our process of attachment evolves. But this is all really for us to understand what it is for a soul to yearn for attachment with God. This is basically the external element of that. So it, it's the most primal and instinctive and existential need for every human being. Now, when a person, first of all, recognizes that this is a yearning for attachment to God, the awareness that this is my soul yearning for God, the awareness beginning with having compassion on my soul, and recognizing the, the pain that my soul is experiencing by being embodied and the process that it has to go through, almost like a baby being taken away from the mother's, the mother's arms. Like the soul was in a space where it was fully revealed and experiencing divine light and it was attached to its source. And then it went through a process of veil after veil after veil to become embodied in a physical world. And that in itself is a trauma, is an attachment wound that <laughs> happens before we're even born. Now, first of all, having compassion on our souls recognizing that our soul experienced that and having compassion that basically translates as having compassion on ourselves for the pain that we experience and he says in this way a person is able to feel avarabha which is a great experience an intense experience of love in the in his conscious heart and he brings the posik that yaakov redeems avraham avraham represents love and yaakov represents compassion so through compassion we are able to awaken a very deep love for God. Compassion on ourselves awakens love of God. That's number one. Number two, he says, is if we think about how much God loves us as well, there's a reciprocal. It's like a, a mirror. If we really think about how deeply another human being loves us, it awakens. We always feel that love, though. We don't feel ourselves. loved by God. Right. It feels challenging sometimes, too. Yeah. The last, the last like, <clears throat> 20 chapters or so in Tanya, we're talking about this in a lot of detail. A lot of meditations he brings to think about things very deeply. Yeah. About how, how much God loves us. He gives it brings a lot of detail explaining. Yeah. And we're gonna go we're gonna get there. I don't want to jump ahead. Yeah. But basically what he says is the more you think about God's love for us, the more you arouse within your heart love of God. He also says the more you think about God's greatness and the unity of all things and the unity of God, and then you think about God's love for us. So that also has a massive impact because it's like you know if the ant loves me fine but no big deal right but when you think about the source of all things and you actually allow your brain to expand to the point where you're having a felt sense of something 
so much greater than yourself. And then you think, well, that, that is what focused their attention on me and loving me. And he goes into a lot of detail to describe all of the spiritual worlds and the angels that exist in those worlds and the souls that exist in those worlds and how God kind of bypasses them and his focus is on, on us as people. That is what is <coughs> most important to him and the relationship that matters, even though there are infinite amount of angels that are singing his praise. And he goes into a lot of detail to get you to a point of recognizing what you actually mean here. Now, then he says that the more we think about that, the more we can actually awaken an emotion about, about it. So if you think about Das, we spoke about it before, but we've got the three faculties of the brain. We've got Chachma, Bina, and Das. Chachma is if you imagine, I actually drew a little picture of it today because I was teaching a different class. Little window on the top of your head. Ah, here it is. Okay, so here you have this guy. He's got a little window on the top of his head and his little, little tiny spot drop, let's say, of insight, an insight, information, just drops into the mind. So you're pondering about something and all of a sudden you have this awareness and are like, oh, and you have this understanding of something, but it's in its, you know, very raw form. Then that's Chachma. That's the experience of Chachma. What is this? Interesting. Inspiration, insight. Then you have Bina, which is now it fills up my whole mind in the sense that I understand it in all its length and breadth. I can teach it. I can explain it. I can analyze it. I can understand embodying it. it. Not yet embodying. Right. You can teach something without embodying it. You can, if you know all the details of it. Okay. Right? Yeah. A lot of times people teach things and they don't live what they teach. Right? <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. So this is where you've been, you've been on something. You understand it. Like you know it back to front. But it's in your head still. This is where it's in the head. And das is where we take what was in our head and we integrate it into our bodies. We really feel it. We live it. It becomes literally part of our blood. It's our experience of life. So how do you take a piece of information if you're learning, for example, about God and his greatness and his love for us? How do you take that? You can understand it and tell it to someone else, right? But how do you take that and actually live it? And he says it's like it's chewing. It's basically if you have a plate of food in front of you, how do you take that food and now integrate it into your body so it becomes energy that you live by? First, you have to chew the food. You have to chew it, chew it, chew it, and then it becomes digested and it becomes absorbed into your blood. And then it becomes the energy that powers your muscles. So what is this chewing? This chewing is Processing. contemplation. Contemplation, thinking it over and over and how is this relevant to me and like literally just chewing over in your mind, contemplating on it thinking about it deeply, practically, what does this mean for me? And you can do this with any, anything. Just take, for example, one, one, one of the blessings that we say in the morning. Let's say, which we're saying, who, who knows the translation of that one? Who guides the, guides the footsteps of man, yeah? Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. basically, we, we are making a blessing in the morning where we say, blessed are you, God, king of the universe, who directs the steps of man. Okay. Now, if you think about that for a second, we can't say a blessing for something that we're not 100% sure. If you, like, there's a plate of food in front of you, you don't bless the food unless you're actually going to eat it. And this, for example, we don't say a, a blessing on giving charity because what if the person you're about to give charity to walks away? So there's a doubt you might not be able to give them charity, so you don't say a blessing. We say a blessing only on something that we know for sure is a fact, okay? Now, God, you direct the steps of man. That means like every single one of our steps throughout the day is directed by God. And we're making a blessing on that. Just take, take a second to think about that for three minutes, literally. 
Now, everything in your day which you think is by mistake or shouldn't be that way, or why did I end up lost in this end of town or that thing? And then think about God is directing the steps of man and he brought me here, obviously, because he wanted my specific light to shine in this place today. And if you, if you really ponder this, this blessing, we say the blessings in like five minutes flat because we're rushing and not even thinking about what we're saying. But if you would think about it for a minute, then what would happen every, every, every single moment of your day when if you really, really knew that God is directing every single one of your steps? Your whole experience of your day would be different because you have taken that information from what you said and know. If I said to you, well, what does the blessing mean? You know what the blessing means. But do you really know what the blessing means? Not until you contemplate it. Not until you chew it over. Do you really know what that blessing means? And that's what Das is. This is, the, this is where it drops in. So in order to awaken, this is where we awaken an emotion. In order to awaken an emotion in our hearts, we have to contemplate. We have to chew. So somebody, for example, to answer your question, who does not experience love of God and who wants to have that ability, they need to do with chewing. Other than one times. Every so, day to chew. That prayer, how much time do you give yourself to yeah. feel that prayer? Yeah. You know? Look, the Hasidic philosophy <laughs> and... <laughs> meltdown. Yeah. The Hasidic philosophy and specifically the mystics taught us that contemplation before prayer is so important in order to create meaning and emotion for our prayer. Now, what we are taught and what we do in practice sometimes... There is a gap, <laughs> depending on the person and how seriously they, they take it. Now, it is central to Judaism and it is central to our relationship with God to spend time contemplating godliness. But it is not something necessarily that we are taught how to do, necessarily in our education system. It is something that is written in all of the, the Kabbalistic literature and it's also something that is deeply embedded in all of Hasidic philosophy. And it is something that I think people are becoming more and more aware of its necessity now. They think that we could deal with some more learning, how to contemplate less information and more chewing over the essentials, which is what is God and what's my relationship with God. I think this is so vital and very little touched upon in my education. Anyway, it's very essential. It's extremely essential. I think over the course of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe says, and you need to do this or contemplate this over and over and over again. He uses the word avoider. Which means work, inner work. What's this inner work? What are we talking about here? It seems a lot has to do with contemplation and working with becoming self-aware of the voices in our head and communicating with them and creating unification between different parts of ourselves that are in conflict with each other. And we spoke a lot about that in our, in our earlier classes, about transforming the animal soul and what that looks like. Transforming the animal soul. Yeah. Because I feel like moving from the animal soul with too much information yeah. without, without being felt, yeah. the animal... Is yeah. gonna be caged, yeah. and sooner or later is gonna feel constricted. Yeah. Okay. Whereas transforming, yes, yeah. as, as but you're redirecting the energy. Yes. That's all. You're that's, redirecting that's the energy, and therefore you're using it. You can't actually get rid of energy. You can only redirect energy. So, suppressing the animal soul doesn't really get us anywhere. But transforming the animal soul, on the other hand, is what the Alter Rebbe is is focusing on. How do we transform it? And a lot of transforming it, he says, has to do with what we contemplate, because he says that. The one place where the divine soul and the animal soul share a throne, right? The, the, each soul is made up of, set of ten parts, we said. Three parts intellect, seven parts emotion. 
the emotions, the divine soul and the animal soul do not really um, communicate with each other very much. There's one time when they do, and that's when there's an overflow of divine soul emotions, and it's so much overwhelming that it actually impacts the animal soul emotions. But it's it's not the norm. What the norm is is that they share the space of the of the prefrontal cortex or the part of the brain that is logical, logical thought process, self-awareness, this kind of thing. So when you know something and you truly understand something with your divine soul and your animal soul, both understand it. So when you really get it, if you understand an idea, like in theory, it doesn't necessarily, but when you truly understand something and it makes sense logically in your present current life, so your animal soul understands it just as much as your divine soul and, and you start to shift and change the way your animal soul begins to think and view things. So you start removing assumptions and beliefs, just, but you're slowly transforming it through that process. Okay, so let's get back to what you're talking about, service. We were talking about service, being of service to God. I'm going to read you a summary of what we just said, and we'll see if there's any questions. Okay, so redefining what it means to serve. When one thinks of a servant, one thinks of someone who has no choice, someone who isn't given any respect or autonomy. When talking of serving God, this is not the definition of serving that is being used. All people serve something, whether it's our beliefs, values, money, pleasure, bodily needs, or egos, etc., A person chooses to serve that which is meaningful to them. To be of service to something or someone gives us a sense of purpose. So we're all serving something. Humans have a deep instinctive need to have meaning and purpose in life. An ant doesn't wake up in the morning and contemplate their worthiness or purpose. Just a human being does that, right? So Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychotherapist and student of Freud, spent time in Auschwitz during the Second World War. He wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, How he observed inmates as they came to the camps, he noticed that those that had a why to live could endure almost any how. He divided meaning into three categories. Either I have someone to live for, or I have a mission to do, or my meaning comes from exercising my ability to choose in any given moment to rise above the forces of negativity around me and to do acts of kindness and goodness in each moment. So it's it's a very present moment-to-moment choice to live for. The meaning is that I have the ability to be human, which means to have choice. Each person has a deep inner drive and desire to be of service. Humans want to be wanted and need to be needed. To be of service to something one values is one of the most meaningful things that we can do. Service is not about losing ourselves. It's about becoming a part of something so much greater than ourselves and yet staying unique. When one defines God as the energy pulsing within all life, as well as all physical matter, the source of all beauty, truth, love, goodness, self-awareness, wisdom, and so much more, and then one thinks about how God has chosen each one of us at birth to be of service in this world, this is an absolute honor. Okay, so we're just really redefining service here. You started saying that we we all serve something, Mm. like... And then you're talking about acts of service. Right. Like, are you, like, in service of? Yes. What is the difference? So, uh, serve something would be, let's say, for example, I'm serving people's approval of me. So all my actions are driven to get the approval. Because what people think of me is what I serve. I'll be driven to do any act that will gain me approval. Because what I'm serving is people's approval of me. And the difference with God is, is that we're... We'll do acts. 
You're right. Yes, yeah, so we'll do acts that will um, enhance the relationship with God. Torah mitzvah is like what God asked us to do because God is inf infinite. And how does a finite being connect with an infinite God? He told us how in the Torah. So it's like, wow, I know what to do. I can, I can do this mitzvah. And then I, I'm holding God in my hand. And that's a very powerful. So going back to the beginning of the Bainani with the service without feeling. The plateaued Bainani, the one who's not serving yeah. actively. He's not actively serving. He could have actively served at one point in his life, but now he's plateaued. It's like so, the by rote kind of thing. On the outside, I'm doing all, all the right acts, but my relationship, my inner world is not necessarily alive or driven in any way. It's and just, there's so many people who do that. Like they mm -hmm. go to shul every single day and they're praying and they're Me. learning, but they're truly. <laughs> There is no, right, but the relationship no is not. Yeah, the relationship's not. There's, there's no. There's no, no energy. Energy. We don't even know there needs to be a relationship. There's That's no the thing. Like, I'm only just thinking. Oh, like maybe I should be having a relationship. It's like on autopilot almost. But they're all. They're. You're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Like you are praying, and you feel like I'm doing and the right thing. You've ticked the box. I've ticked the box. You've ticked the box. Like I've gone to show. I listened to. Oh, I have to, to do the, it. I have to do it. And once I get it done. Then I can get on with yeah, my day. I'm either good or, like I said, I've gotten it done or I haven't managed. It's like not eating till you hear Kiddush, but once I hear Kiddush, I, I could eat, but there's no meaning behind yeah, it. Yeah, and I only started Same thinking thing. about it when I'd be like, who cares if I eat without Kiddush or not? Let me go and eat. That's when I started thinking, hold on a second, like, why am I not eating before Kiddush? Right. Well, they say defiance is what makes people move. Like, yeah. Because, so what you're actually doing is... It's something that's positive. I know you think it's negative, but it's actually positive. Yeah, like I get, got from a point of like, who really cares? To, okay, one second, so who really cares? But if you didn't think that way, you would never exactly. take the time to think about it. <clears throat> okay, let's get back to our summary here. And then we can continue. So then he goes on to say, the Sadiq is called the servant of God. The Bainini is called the one who is serving God, the act of service. So the Sadiq has completed the work of transforming the animal soul within him. Whereas the Bainini is an act of service. In the category of the Bainini, there are two types, one who is serving God and one who isn't serving God. The one engaged in active service is a person who is constantly confronting their demons, triggers, and traumas, regulating their nervous system, engaging in contemplation, chewing a, an idea over, and making choices that align them with their truth. The one who is not in active service is the person who has reached a plateau and doesn't, um, doesn't struggle either due to their nature being more regulated or they're in the habit of always doing right action after training themselves for some time. It comes easily to them now. And this is a direct quote from Tanya here, that this will explain the statement in the Gemara that one who is serving God refers to him who reviews his lesson 101 times, while one who serves him not refers to him who repeats his lessons no more than 100 times. This is because in those days it was customary to review each lesson 100 times, as indeed illustrated in the Gemara by the example from, taken from the market where donkey drivers used to hire themselves out at a rate of 10 parasangs for a zuz, but for the 11th parasang, charged two zuzim, because that exceeded their customary practice. For the same reason, 101 revisions, which is beyond the normal practice to which the students had been accustomed since childhood, is considered equivalent to all of the previous 100 times put together, and even surpassing them in endurance and effort, hence entitling him to be called the one who is serving God. For in order to change his habitual nature, he must arouse the love of God by means of meditation in his mind on the greatness of God in order to gain mastery over the nature that is in the left part of the heart, 
which is full of blood of the animal soul, originating in the klipa, whence comes his nature. And this is the perfect service of the bainini, this work, this process. So in order to go that extra mile, one needs to want to go the extra mile. That's what's so important. To want to go the extra mile, one needs to feel desire to do so. And there are two types of desire, superficial and intrinsic. Often these desires contradict each other. The spiritual service of moving from superficial desire to intrinsic desire takes breathing, awareness, and humility. To be able to say, what is my superficial desire? What is my intrinsic desire? And if we start to really think about that deep down, any superficial desire, there's really a, a deeper desire, more intrinsic desire, of, which we spoke about for a second before, about the yearning for attachment and connection from our soul to God, to the source of all things. And every superficial desire, let's say, for example, superficial desire for approval from others is really just a superficial expression of our deeper desire for true attachment to the source of all life. But we're just seeing it as a superficial thing, right? We're just seeing that that's what it is rather than asking myself, why do I care about others' approval? What is going on for me here? Why is that so important? And, and, and the more that we kind of dig a little bit, the more we really get to and uncover that, that love and that desire that we have deep down for God. Interesting, like it's the Samalachan Nafshi thing, you know, Carl Jung, when he, the, you know, the AA, you know the stuff? Am I talking right? 12 step. The 12 step. It's 12 step. Are you out of the 12 step program? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of guided by a letter that Carl Jung wrote to someone who was an alcoholic, who he was trying to help, who had been so-called cured of an addiction of alcohol and then relapsed. And he said to him in his letter, you need to go and find a spiritual experience because you're basically just craving spirituality. And unless you find that and feel that in your life, then you will constantly be looking for it in more superficial places and all forms of addiction fall Mm -hmm. into that. It's really a very deep soul that is prone to addiction because they just can't bear the aching emptiness of the superficial or the, the not, being not being connected. Yeah. And then working directly with people. For the type of work I do with them, I get the strongest feedback. There are certain very studied men, brain, incredible, in, you know, in, in Torah and religious study, which they look in their body as if there is nothing connecting their, let's mm-hmm. say, the three layers, as I would call them. And, and as you're teaching them to connect to their body, they bypass a big, thick surface, layers and layers, and they are in it, with it, in the quickest time, and you feel the rebound. And they are the one telling me, wow, now when I meditate, I root, and I connect even at a deeper layer. Thanks to you, I put a few things of my body in a perspective of connecting. It's unbelievable. And I had it from about, I don't know, in my 20 plus years, I don't know, about 30 men. Really? But and you, as you're looking at them, you wouldn't say, let, they wouldn't do a push up without getting injured. And they, mm-hmm. they are looking like, you know, but they are, they, their inner spirit has reached such a level of, of, of I would probably call, called space outside their space, mm-hmm. even if they don't feel like it. But it takes nothing to ignite, 
that's the Torah study. It's the Chachma. So it's like all up here, and then you just open the door, and it falls back in. It falls in. Drops in. It's a Chachma. It's all in the Bina and the Chachma. Yes, because the Torah study, they study so much. They have it. They all have it. They just haven't made the connection yet. Right. They haven't integrated it. They haven't integrated, but they have it all. This okay. is something that the Baal Shem Tov taught, that you don't need a high IQ in order to connect into your body to experience divine energy and God in your heart. You don't need a high IQ. And you shouldn't well, no, have to chew the information. Yes, but you can, you can, for example, chew one tiny piece of very simple information. And it often, doesn't seem simple to me, anything of it. No, but <laughs> someone with high IQ is also stuck in their head. They just want to be in their head. They want to, they want They're not to make in their sense. body. Yeah. And you need to connect your body to your head. And you don't have to be smart yeah. to connect your body to your head. Let's just take this one idea. Yeah. God directs the steps of man. Someone who has a high IQ might go into this, well, how do I know? And it, prove it to me. Or someone who is just a more simple person in the sense that they're just, they're more heart-centered. Yeah. They don't necessarily think about things. They might feel it deeper. And then it, that information, just tell them God is directing every one of your steps they may just integrate yeah. that information more like simple Simply. faith simple faith <laughs> exactly so then he says this is the key so the most important key in the divine service of the bainini is to contemplate in their mind on the greatness of god this thought process will give them emotional energy and strength to do the right thing in any given situation so it's a lot to do with spending time and i would say three minutes a day is enough like i know that we think like write down for me what to think okay just think <laughs> about this minutes. one. Okay, this week, you direct the steps of man. Just literally think about that this week. Put a timer on your phone for three minutes and actually just think about, practically speaking, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean if God is directing every single one of my steps today? Wherever I find myself, wherever I end up being, whatever. If I'm in traffic, I get lost. I, I, you know, I'm waiting in a queue somewhere that I don't want to be. If I trip. God, if you trip, if your kids are screaming and crying and having a tantrum on the street, it doesn't matter. God is directing the steps of man, which means you are being brought to this place exactly because this is exactly where you need to be because your unique needs to shine in this unique darkness right now. And this is why you're here. There is absolute guidance and you're being taken to this place any single moment in your day. Just think about that for three minutes every morning for the next seven days, and then tell me how you feel in the next class, okay? okay. That's one thing. Yeah, that's, that's enough. Three minutes <laughs> on just that idea. how do you know when it's choice and when it's, and when it's God is directing you? Because Bino becomes Das. No, so how do you know if this is your Bechira? Okay, so basically... Because like when you're yeah. wasting time by like watching something, right. that's not, God didn't direct you right. to go and watch We only have choice. We only have choice when we are consciously aware of the fact that we have choice. This is important to know. A lot of times we are living in autopilot and we don't necessarily disassociate it perhaps. Choice, Bechira, happens when I am self-aware. And I have my das is online. My das is my... So does that mean God is not directing you? No, he is directing you. He is directing you to this point, to this moment where you would have choice. And sometimes... It's a whole day of autopilot until I have one moment where I become aware that I've spent the whole day in autopilot and I have a moment where I get to actually feel what I feel about that and to, re- and to turn that moment into an opportunity for connection. And like we've said in many classes before, every moment of choice is to ask ourselves the question, what is my opportunity for growth here? And every moment will be a different opportunity for growth. So when I have choice, I ask myself, what is my opportunity for growth here? And sometimes the opportunity for growth here is to shiver because I've just spent my whole day 
being disconnected from myself and teshuvah is my opportunity for reconnection to myself and to God and to meaning and to what am I doing here and why am I here and I've been on autopilot all day long I haven't really connected to anything that is true and meaningful to me so but that's pain what working on autopilot all day long without yeah. being connected sure is pain. exactly so that one moment in the evening where that's I may become aware <laughs> that way that one moment where I may become aware that I, I've spent my whole day like this that moment is an opportunity for me to open my heart, to experience the pain, show it to God and say, yeah, I, don't, I didn't want this. This is painful for me. That's to show us returning back to the truth of what did I want? What do I want? Who am I? What do I want to do here? Taking that moment to connect to God, that might be my bichira in that moment. That's my choice in that moment. Or to just become aware that I'm in autopilot, go right back into autopilot. Like <laughs> keep scrolling through Instagram, whatever. Like just because I can't face the fact, I I don't want to go and 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 be there. That that's that moment. Of, that's my moment of pechira. Not autopilot. Right? What should I be thinking whilst I'm washing the dishes? If not, just that, automatically. Do <laughs> what you should be okay that you're washing vessels that have been used again and again and again and again. They keep getting dirty and they keep getting washed and you keep doing this. this is the process of life. You're preparing vessels to receive light. Cleaning the breakfast bowls to receive more cereal the next morning. <laughs> but what's so interesting about this work is that we come into the world and we do the same work over and over again. You wash the same item of clothing, the same dish, the same floor, over and over again. It's like Groundhog Day, same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> you can grow every day. Exactly, that's the thing. It's like it's not about doing something necessarily different. It's about doing it deeper, doing it with growth, doing it with more awareness, doing it with more connection. Less resentment. Yeah, Less exactly. Resentment. And every day we have new opportunity for growth. And this is what he says about the, the process of, of teshuva is, is returning to ourselves as every day on a deeper level because every day we grow and every day we have more opportunities for deeper connection with ourselves and with God. So basically it's a process of, of evolution that happens through the same monotony then our inner worlds have an opportunity for growth. At some point, we realize that I want to respond to it differently. I'm exhausted. I used to get so frustrated and angry about that. And then it just kept happening again. My reaction wasn't stopping it. Yeah. You know, I yelled at my kids and I yelled at them again and I yelled at them again and they're still not going to bed. So maybe I need to do something differently now. Yeah. And that, that's where we start to grow. That's our opportunity for growth. And we slowly, very slowly evolve through this process. Sometimes, like, as in if you're, you're trying to do the right thing, because, you know, it's like a halacha from God. that Like, God wants you to do this. So you try to do the right thing. Yeah. But then at one point, you're like, okay, now. Don't, Don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Done. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why that might be. And it's important to check with ourselves. It could be that we're physically depleted, emotionally depleted. It could be that we need inspiration. It could be there's a, something that we have done that has created a certain darkness and apathy in our soul that we need to face. And, and when we face that and we face and recognize actually the impact of what that was and we feel the pain of, of, of the disconnection that that caused, we then open our hearts again and we start to feel a renewed sense of energy flow and, and desire for connection again. And if it is that, for example, we're feeling depleted or, or exhausted or, or stressed or whatever, I would, I would see to that. And like the Alter Rebbe says, anytime we use Klippus Neuge, which is the neutral things in the world, in order to enhance our ability to be um, of service to God, then it is like a sacrifice, it's a burnt offering. So in the sense that if I need more sleep, just your sleep is a holy act. Go and sleep. It's a mitzvah, <laughs> like literally. If you need a, a massage or therapy or any kind of help, whatever it is, it's all part of our spiritual service because it's about integrating in the world, connecting with God in the world. And that means not, not leaving the world and going to meditate on a mountain, but it means 
living in the nitty-gritty of the world and making that a space where God is too. So I would look at it and only you can really know for yourself what it is, but it's definitely an opportunity for growth, like everything else, to get curious about what is this? Why am I here? So you deal with apathy by learning? You deal with apathy by searching inward and asking yourself the question, where am I depleted? And what is this apathy? What does it feel? Question it. What is this experience of apathy? If I had a voice, what would it say? When did it begin? What is it protecting what me from? Transgenerational. Yeah, well, huh. yeah, well, well exactly. It's a good question. If it's transgenerational, what do I do? So you don't even know where it's coming what from. What do you, yeah. what's trans, don't, don't teach me new things. <laughs> uh, well, we, we, in, we inherit trauma and we also inherit gifts. We're going to talk about that in the next couple of chapters. It's a great, great bit. We talk about we, the, what, all the things, all the gifts <laughs> we've inherited. inherited trauma, my God. <laughs> we've inherited trauma. It's not just trauma. your stuff, it's your grandparents' stuff. But we also me. inherit the oh strengths. We also <laughs> inherit the strengths. And I think it's important to hold that in balance because we can get very scared by like, oh my gosh, I've got inherited trauma. I hope I had enough of my own. <laughs> but we also inherit the strengths, which is a very powerful... From our uh, um, dead or alive ancestors. Oh. anyone oh. now let's just just take for a moment just think about this you were in your grandmother's uterus yeah i've read this like okay, how were you in right you, when your mother was in your grandmother's womb all her eggs were fully developed there now that means that the egg that created you was in your grandmother's uterus oh so gosh. therefore you have her dna literally in you so <laughs> basically trauma <laughs> impacts our, our genes and our dna so we inherit things through our DNA and through our genes. Also, every person comes to the world with a certain ticket, an opportunity for transformation in this world. And whatever we don't finish doing, we hand it to our children. They take the bat on. It's like a relay race. We hand it, and then they do the next bit, and then they hand it to their kids, and they do the next bit. We all have this, every generation. It's like, think about all the things our parents did wrong, and we're going to do better. Yeah. And really, the only reason why we can do better is because they took a step further from their parents. Everyone does a little step. Yeah. No one can do all the work. Everyone's just doing their next step, their next step, and passing on the next.